Turn with me once again to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Um, and we're, we're next to our, the last sermon on uh, this series of the Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ. Before I read my text, uh, there's a couple of things that I, I need to say. The first one has to do with the past week. Um, that is, I don't know whether you were able to come over here this past week and watch or see what was going on um, in, this, in this facility. It was um, so blasted impressive. 500 kids, um, some <laughs> at their worst, but um, 200 volunteers, men and women alike, primarily women, but some men as well, working indefatigably to present the gospel to 500 kids a day uh, for three hours a day. It was impressive, ladies and gentlemen, impressive. And I know that about Wednesday, those of you who volunteered were wondering, why did I ever sign up for this? Um, But you did something so big, so um, impressive. I don't know whether Julie Ulander is here, is, is... is Julie, are you here, Julie? I guess not. She, um, she ran the thing. And I, I'm telling you, you parents owe her a, at least a thank you. It was an enormous project. And, I, and I'm telling you, I don't know how it could have been done any better. I applaud you. I, I think in light of some of the things that, that have happened in our country in this past week, to think that 500 kids were around here Daily hearing nothing but truth. It's just, it was a job well done, guys, and and I applaud you. Now, the other thing. I just thought I should say a few words about the Affordable Care Act, don't you think? Guys, I know of several preachers who are preaching on the Supreme Court's ruling about same-sex marriage this morning. I, I am not. But here's what I would like to say. The days are growing gloriously dark. <laughs> That's kind of an oxymoron. If you, It's a gloriously dark. Let, let, let me explain. The, the, the dark days. Um, yesterday, I, I, or yeah, last night, I did a wedding. I, I did a wedding in Pocahontas, Mississippi, at the home of Trent Lott. Do you, do you know who Trent Lott is, the, the ex-senator? Um, did a wedding at his home. But, uh, outside, it was hot as blue blazes, and uh, we were next to a lake. It was a beautiful spot, but it was hot. And right as I was pronouncing the man, man and wife, it started to rain. And... Um, and instead of having everybody escorted out, we just said, run for your lives. You know? uh, there was a tent where the reception was to be held. And so everybody just kind of scattered without the last formalities. But, um, and, and I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't foresee it. I didn't see it coming. But as I stood there um, and speaking to these people, uh, saying things about marriage, a man and a woman being married and... and um, and, and uh, that, that God gave us this institution of marriage and, 
And, um, and I realized as I was saying those things, the same things that I had been saying for 40 years, those things that I find so rich and so true and so beautiful were now so controversial. Same things. And now those things that I'm saying about the beauty of marriage between a man and a woman conceivably could get me tossed into jail. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's a, it's, a, it's a chance. Those ladies and gentlemen, that's an illustration of how dark are the days. The things that for thousands of years have been held to be true are now different because the days are dark. But they're gloriously dark. Because they're, um, they're an opportunity for the church finally, maybe not finally, but urgently, for the church to be the church. For the church to do a job that she was called to do in the, in the first place. You know, somebody said this, and I, I don't know who it was, I've read a lot this week, but um, that the homosexual community, and if you're here, we're glad you're here, but the homosexual community thinks that this decision is going to make them happy and um, is going to bring them joy. And it is not. But by the way, you who are in an adulterous affair, you think that's going to bring you happiness and going to bring you joy. And it is not either. Joy is only going to be found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A message that is broadcast here over and over and over again each week. And so now, our job is more urgent. It's, it's, um, and and I, I, I would remind you, I hope you realize that the church was born in a culture as, as ungodly as this one. The Roman Empire was no friend of the Christian church. But now, ladies and gentlemen, Tim Keller talks about the mushy middle of church attenders. They're going to disappear. And, and good. Because the darkness is going to drive them out of this thing that now can be um, viewed as the great enemy of the state. You ready for that? The Christian church is the most persecuted minority in the, in the world. And it's, it's about to become worse. So, the days are dark. Gloriously dark. An opportunity for the church to, um, to do her job. And uh, I, for one, I welcome that. Now, to the text. John chapter 16, at verse 16, you follow as I read. Jesus is speaking and he says, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, what, <clears throat> what is this <clears throat> that he says, a little while? We don't know what he's saying. 
Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will, sor- and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy No one will take from you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this endures forever. Guys, I'm a pastor. I'm not a very good one, but I'm a pastor nonetheless. One of my great heroes is another pastor, the Apostle Paul. He was excellent at it. Um, He did a whale of a job loving the people uh, to whom he ministered. Uh, And all those churches throughout Asia Minor where he planted those churches. He he, he really was impressive. But but, um, even Paul, as you may recall, Paul got in a couple of fights along the way. Did you know that? I mean, <laughs> he got in a huge, big fight with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. In fact, it says um, that he was stood in face to face before them all. That is, out in public. Here's the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, you know, just going at, not fisticuffs, but, you know, they're just hollering at each other right there in front of everybody. Mm. And then, then Paul got in another fight with Barnabas, of all people, the son of encouragement. Uh, Acts chapter 15, and the fight became, because it was the, 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 the subject was whether or not Mark should go on the next missionary journey. Paul didn't want him to, Barnabas did. And so the, the text said that the, the division became so severe that they split up. That is, Paul and, and Barnabas. Barnabas went one way and took Mark, and um, uh, Barnabas yeah, and Paul went the other way. Ugly. Not exactly behavior that's becoming to a pastor. But there is one pastor, the pastor, whose behavior was always in accord with what he taught and what he believed and what he represented. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And I I guess one of the the key elements of of being a pastor is is mercy, uh, you know, tenderness, compassion, something that I, I find in short supply in me quite often. But, but in Christ, what you see is consummate mercy. I, I don't think I'd, I need to prove that, but, but, I, but I will say this much. What you see bleeding through these last hours of Jesus' life is the quintessential pastoral ministry. You see it in chapter 13 and verses uh, uh, 16 through 30. Uh, You see it in the opening of chapter 16. Uh, You see it here. 
what's bleeding through all of this, this that's being taught and said in these last hours of Jesus Christ is, is pastoral concern, pastoral mercy, pastoral tenderness, pastoral compassion. And in, uh, instead of concerns for himself and all that he was about to face, and he was about to efface some pretty uh, tough stuff, uppermost in his mind is concern for those 11 guys. Judas, of course, is gone, as you know. But his concern is, how are the events that are about to unfold, of which there are going to be many, and they're not going to be pretty, uh, the uh, betrayal and the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, how are they going to <coughs> react? How is it going to impact these guys that I so love? Um, among all of the things that Jesus face, faces, what you see bleeding through it all is his concern for them. This is a this is a pastor who is um, functioning like I wish all of us pastors did. Now, l- let me um, be more specific and, um, and clearer, I hope. Guys, when I read the text this morning, when I read you verses 16 through 22, and, and um, uh, if, you, if you were confused about what you were hearing... Uh, don't be alarmed. You're not the only ones. The 11 guys that were hearing it were confused. This, um, this little while thing, what, what, what is that all about? By the way, he mentions little while seven times in these, uh, these short six verses. Um, and, and so, uh, so if that's all confusing to you, like it was for them, let me see if I can make it clearer. He says, in essence, in a little while... In about two hours, <laughs> I'm going to be dragged away, and you're not going to see me. And then in another little while, um, I, 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 I'm going to be really gone because I'm, I'm going to be dead. Because there are events that are going to be set in motion in the Garden of Gethsemane that are going to lead me unstoppably to the cross. Which means, fellows, you're not going to see me. Now, that's, that's in verse 16. In a little while, you will not see me. And in a little while, you will see me. I gotta stop right there because that is that is a description of their immediate crisis. There is about to be a three day period, a, a little while, where where Jesus would no longer be seen by them. Three days, or at least portions of three days where Jesus will be dead. The resurrection will not have happened. Uh, The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will have not happened. 
So there's going to be this <clears throat> brief period, a little while, three days or so. Where you're going to be alone, you're going to feel completely abandoned, and you will have no idea as to how this whole thing is going to work out. Can I say that again? There are coming some days, real soon says Jesus, where you're going to be alone, you're going to be confused, you're going to feel abandoned, and you will have no idea as to how this whole thing is going to resolve. And because Jesus knows those days are coming, this pastor is worried about them. You know, guys, a whole, a whole lot can happen in three days, can't it? But the pastor, Christ, tells them that this is only going to be for a little while. So you guys hold on. Because in another little while, you will see me. He never mentions the word resurrection, but it's there. It's in verse 22. It's in verse 16. Um, it's, it's, it's in there. But they don't see it. They don't get it. They don't understand what they just heard. Um, <clears throat> um, all they know is we're confused about what he's saying. Things are getting really critical. And I guess, you know, I guess the thing that they're going to have to do at this point in their lives is that they're simply going to have to hold on to a promise that he gave them. In a little while. You will see me. Here's a group of people, 11 of them. They're in a crisis. They're confused. They have no way to explain their circumstances and don't know how this is all going to work out. And the only thing that they have to hold on to is a promise that Jesus Christ has given them. Years ago, uh, back in um, the mid-80s, Susie and I were in a crisis, a kind of a, it wasn't a marital crisis, it was a pastoral crisis. And at that time, during that crisis, my biggest ally, my best ally in that crisis was a man by the name of R.C. Sproul. You might know him. And um, one night, R.C. called us, and I, I, I think he was in California. It was a Sunday night. He called us, and he was checking on us, and, um, and he asked, um, 
how things were going, and I, I, I filled him in on the, uh, the, the present state of affairs. And then he said this to me. He said, Jimmy, <clears throat> I guess about the only thing that I can say to you at this point is just dig your nails into the side of the wall and hang on. Now, had I been playing the role of R.C. Sproul with these 11 guys here in John 16, if I had been their counselor, and they're in a a situation where they're confused, they feel abandoned, they don't know how this is going to all work out, if if, if I had been playing the part that R.C. played for me, if I had been playing that part for these 11 guys, I would have said something similar. I would have said, fellas... About all I can say to you at this point is just dig your nails into the side of the wall and hang on. But then I would have added this. Guys, let me tell you what the wall is. It's his word. It's his promises to you. So guys, Dig your nails into the side of the promises of God and hold on. In the midst of all of their confusion, in the midst of all of their despair, their fear, and all of their unanswered questions, all they've got to hold on to is the promise that Jesus gave them. You know, guys, um, Jesus is baffling even to those people who love him. You know, I told you, I said that years ago about a story in Luke chapter 2. You know the story where, where uh, Jesus is 12 years old and, and uh, his parents have visited Jerusalem and then they're heading back to Nazareth and they lose him. They can't find their 12-year-old. That's kind of scary. And it takes three days to find him, and they find him in the temple, and he's reasoning with the priests and the scribes and all. And when Mary sees him, Mary goes up to him and says, Why have you treated us like this? Have you ever wanted to ask that? You know, wait a minute, Jesus. I'm one of those ones that love you. Why are you treating me like this? They're confused. It says so in verse 18 and following in our text. And in the midst of their confusion, his only reply to their confusion, his his explanation, if you will, is ambiguous at best. And he does it on purpose. He doesn't say, now come guys, sit down here. Let me explain to you because the resurrection is, oh, you, know, you don't know what the resurrection is? Oh, let me explain what the resurrection is. <laughs> let, me, let me explain all, so that all of your questions will be answered. He doesn't do that. He leaves them in their confusion On purpose. 
And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's not the first time he's ever done that. In Luke 13, they, the disciples come to him and they say, um, hey, Jesus, um, we got a question for you. The question is, are there just a few that are being saved? Did you ever see his reply to that question? It was this. Strive to enter the kingdom. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus, maybe you didn't hear us. We didn't ask that question. Ladies and gentlemen, in debate, that's called a non sequitur. That is, it doesn't, that doesn't follow. What we asked you, what we asked you, Jesus, is um, um, how many are going to be saved? And your reply does not answer our question. And consequently, Jesus, we are left in the middle of our confusion. And he lets them stay there. What he gives them in answer to their question is his promise. He doesn't answer all of their questions. He simply assures them that I have your best interest at heart. But in the midst of this circumstance where you're confused and you got questions and you don't know how this is all gonna work out, you're, you're, you're just simply gonna have to trust me. Just like me and you. He does not see fit to answer all their questions. And he does not see fit to answer all of yours. And in response to our questions, he gives us a promise. A promise about our future. And for now, that's going to have to be enough. Is it? Is it enough for you? By the way, he, 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 does, he does tell them this. This is in verse 20. You will be sorrowful. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. But then he goes on in verse 20 and says, but that will only be for a little while. And in the midst of your sorrow and confusion, here's what I got for you. You will see me Because eventually, your sorrow will be turned into joy. You know, it, it's, um, notice in the text, um, th this is kind of a piece of genius on the part of God in his word, but notice the text, it doesn't say that your sorrow will be replaced by joy. It doesn't say that. 
it says that your sorrow will be turned into joy. The very cause of your sorrow, my death, says Jesus, will become the grounds and the subject of your joy. You, in a matter of hours, are going to look at a cross, and I'm going to be on it, and your heart is going to explode with sorrow. But in a little while, you're going to look at that same cross, and it is going to be for you the source of immense joy. The very same thing. And then he gives the illustration about childbirth. Don't let that confuse you. That's just illustrating his point that your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman goes into labor. She has all this pain and agony, et cetera, et cetera, and it's just terrible. And then all of a sudden the child is born and the very thing that caused her grief becomes the thing that causes her joy. You're going to look at my cross and you're going to think the world is over. And in a little while, your sorrow, the thing that caused you sorrow, will be turned into joy. Um, when I was in Ocala, there was a, uh, this was the first ministry I had out of seminary. Uh, there was a young woman there. She was quite a cute little thing. Uh, she was Cuban, full-blooded Cuban, and had somehow gotten in the United States. Her name was Anna Jacobs. I don't know what her, her maiden name was, but she married a guy by the name of Mark Jacobs. And, Mark Jacobs, and uh, she was Anna Jacobs. She was a cute little woman, and she was a ballerina. And, um, I mean, she had that little slight ballerina body. And, and um, on a couple of occasions, Susie and I, because Susie really likes ballet, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not what you'd call one of those, but um, lovers of ballerina, of, of ballet. But because Anna was doing it, we went. And on a couple of occasions, watched her do her craft. And she was great. She was very good, you know, so graceful and so many motions that are just... Anyway, we asked Anna to give her testimony in a, in a worship service one Sunday. And the text that she used, she, she drew out of Psalm 30, verse 11. And I'm sure you know what that says. <laughs> but at least a portion of it in Psalm 30, 11, it says, You have turned my mourning." Not M-O-R-N-I-N-G, but M-O-U-R, my, my crying. You've turned my mourning into dancing. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's what he's saying. I'm going to turn your mourning into dancing. I'm not going to replace your sorrow with joy. I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. Now, let me leave you with two lessons and we're done. Because in case you missed it, let me be clearer. Here's lesson number one. 
Christian living, ladies and gentlemen, often involves profound sorrow. And, much, and so much of that sorrow is because we cannot figure out what is happening. Why are you treating me this way? I'm one of the ones who love you. Why are you treating me like this? And in the midst of those times, ladies and gentlemen, we survive. By holding on to his promises. And for now, that is all we have. And we believe those promises to be more real than our whole emotional life in the midst of our sorrows. We survive. Like those folks in Hebrews chapter 11. You remember Abraham left his home country <clears throat> and he went off to a place that he didn't know of because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. A city with foundations that could not be changed. Hey guys, you have figured out, haven't you, that this city that we're in it doesn't have any foundations to it. And the more you try to sink roots into the foundation of this culture, you will find there's nothing there. The way we survive is that we dig our nails into the side of his promises and we hang on. Because we're looking for a different city. The one whose builder and maker is God and whose foundations cannot be changed. Secondly, and I'm done. Gang, all those why questions that you may have, he is not committed to answer them. At least not yet. All those why questions that you carry around You may not get an answer for those, at least this side of heaven. And with that realization, you're going to have to love him and serve him and follow him and proclaim him without getting all of your questions answered. You okay with that? I, um, I guess I use this too much, but John chapter 6 is where Jesus is talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and got this big crowd and, and he's talked about no man can come to me unless the Father draws him and that's, that's, they don't like that. And, and in, chapter, in verse 65 it says, and many of his disciples withdrew and were following him no more. And uh, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, y'all going to leave too? And Peter says, where will we go? Because nobody else 
Nobody else offers us words of life. And Jesus, the, lie, the, the words that we're hanging on to in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our sorrow, here's what we, we're holding on to. Words that we consider to be words of life. Here they are. I will see you again. Is that enough for you? Heavenly Father, um, would you refresh the hearts of your people by reminding them that the, uh, the thing that you've left behind is not some kind of uh, scientific analysis and explanation. What you left behind are promises. Promises made to us by the one that we consider to be God in flesh visiting planet Earth. And so, Father, in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our feeling abandoned and forsaken, would you tell us once again through this text that though we will be sorrowful, it's only for a little while. Because you're going to take our sorrow you're going to turn it into joy. And it's going to be joy when you fulfill your promise to us. I will see you again. Father, if you brought people in here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you, would you cause them to see the great beauty of this city that has foundations? Because the one that they're in, it doesn't have any. And I hope that you, Lord, I pray that you will convince them of just how tenuous is the ground on which they stand. And then you will point them to the same place where the rest of us beggars found bread from Jesus Christ. Now, Father, draw them to yourself. Might the kingdom expand as it expanded this week at VBS. For that we thank you. Expand it again. Draw others to yourself, even now. We ask it in Jesus' name.